All right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. Thank you again for taking the time to listen. I know you can listen to anyone, and I'm so happy you choose to listen to me and lend me your ear each episode. Don't forget to favorite the podcast so you get notifications when episodes drop, as well as join the What Had Happened Facebook group, where I share true crime memes, true crime news, and podcast updates. Links for the Facebook group, Instagram, and Twitter accounts can be found below in the description box, along with all of my references. Today's episode is the third installment of Spooky Season True Crime Stories given to you by moi. Last episode, I told you about bandmates turned frenemies, Oystein and Varg of the band Mayhem, and Oystein's demise at the hands of Varg. Real quick, I'm going to apologize. Um, it's nice weather here in Anywhere USA, and you might hear some like neighborly interaction outside of my home. It's, yeah. It is what it is, so let's just keep on pushing. So, I love horror movies for a couple of reasons. One, I feared them as a child, but faced them head-on as a teenager to find that I liked the fuck out of them. Because two, they provide an escape from the knowledge that real monsters exist, and what they're capable of doing are far scarier than anything that Hollywood can create. Many of us have seen the Candyman movies, but how many of us know about the real Candyman? What had happened when a predator killed 28 boys in Houston? Do you know? Dean Arnold Coral, C-O-R-L-L, so we're only going to use this last name a couple of times, was born on December 24th, 1939 to Arnold and Mary, Arnold Coral and Mary Robinson in Fort Wayne, Indiana. In 1942, a second son, Stanley, was born. Arnold was a strict father and husband, and Mary was protective of her boys. In 1946, the pair divorced. When Arnold was drafted into the Air Force, Mary sold the family home and relocated with the boys to Memphis, Tennessee, so they could maintain a relationship with their father. Selling the family home and moving across country meant it was wiser for Mary to downsize, so she and the boys moved into a trailer. As a child, Dean was quiet and and reserved. They always say that, don't they? Well, not always, but a lot of times they say that. There was a seriousness about the boy who rarely socialized with other children besides his little brother and a genuine sense of, like, overall care for people's you know, well-being that he displayed for others. When Dean was seven, he had an undiagnosed case of rheumatic fever, which went unknown until doctors discovered Dean had a heart murmur in 1950. Because of this condition, the already shy child no longer had to participate in physical education at school, further preventing him from participating actively and socially with his peers. I presume, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's like 1950. So if you're not playing kickball or stickball or any of the sports skits, 
you know, um, as a little boy with the neighborhood children, either at school in gym class or after school or at recess, what really are you doing besides just going to school and coming home? Huh? What a shit existence. That's really sad. In 1950, Arnold and Mary reconciled and remarried. Shortly thereafter, the Corals relocated to Pasadena, Texas. In 1953, the two parted ways again, and Mary retained custody of Dean and Stanley. As before, the divorce was amicable, and the boys remained in their father's life. After her second divorce from Arnold, Mary remarried for a third time, this time to traveling clock salesman Jake West. The family settled their homestead in the small town of Vider, Texas. In 1955, daughter Joyce was born. Around the time of Joyce's birth, Mary and Jake began a small family candy company operated out of the family's garage initially. All hands were on deck in the family business. Before and after school, Dean and Stanley operated the candy-making machines and packaging. Jake would distribute the candy along his salesman route. A nice stretch of Jake's route was in Houston, where the bulk of the candy was sold. From 1954 to 1958, Dean attended Vider High School. Dean was still considered a shyish loner, but he did get generally good grades, and he dated girls from time to time. The only interest he really showed was playing the trombone in the school's brass band. After graduation, the family moved to the northern outskirts of Houston so the candy company could be closer to the area where their product was sold primarily. Mary and Jake opened a new shop that they named Pecan Prince after the confection they sold. In 1960, Mary asked Dean to move to Indiana and stay with his newly widowed grandmother. Whilst in Indiana, Dean dated a local girl who was super infatuated and in love with him. Dean, however, was in like with her and would say to her no to her marriage proposal. In 1962, Dean returned to Texas to help with the family business, which had moved to Houston Heights. Dean would move into an apartment above the candy shop. In 1963, Mary and Jake divorced. Mary would open her own candy company she'd name Coral Candy Company, which I'm going to be referring to as CCC. Dean, the appointed vice president, and Stanley was the secretary and treasurer. The second year, or the same year, the newly founded company began operating. A teenage boy informed Mary that Dean had made sexual advances towards him. Mary's response to this news was to fire the young man. Bitch. On August 10, 1964, Dean was drafted into the U.S. Army. After completing basic training at Fort Polk, Louisiana, Dean went to Fort Benning, Georgia for training in radio repair with a first duty station of Fort Hood, Texas. While Dean had an unblemished military record for the brief time he was in the Army, Dean reportedly hated being in the Army and requested a family hardship discharge so he could help his mother with the family business. Dean was granted his honorable discharge and returned home. 
When Dean returned home, he confided to a few close friends that whilst in the army, he realized he was homosexual and that he experienced his first homosexual encounters while in the army. Others noticed the subtle differences in Dean's demeanor when he was in the presence of the teenage boys employed at the candy company. Jake West had continued with his company, Pecan Prince, and competition between both confectioners was, like, high. Dean, who had resumed his position as vice president, would work day and night to satisfy the increase in customer demands. In 1965, CCC was relocated to 22nd Street. The company was located directly across the street from Helms Elementary School. I wonder whose suggestion it was to move here. <laughs> Dean developed a Pied Piper reputation with the school children, especially the teenage boys, as he was known to give out free candy frequently. Local children giving him the nickname The Candy Man. Although business was bustling, hustling, pralines, or whatever they were selling, the company was small, employing mostly teenage boys. Dean was said to have had a pool table installed in the back of the business, and teen boys were encouraged to congregate there. Sidebar. What we're seeing is grooming, obviously. Dean would establish a trusting relationship with these children, providing them with free candy, employment, and most importantly, like, setting up the environment, you know, to pounce on them. In 1967, Dean befriended 6th grader David Owen Brooks. David had been teased for years by many of his, like, peers and actually, like, adults, too, for his glasses, but Dean didn't do that and made the boy feel special. David's parents were divorced. He lived in Houston with his father while his mother was 85 miles away in Beaumont. David became one of the many children who Dean would regularly give free candy to. It wasn't long before the tween was hanging out with the teenagers that congregated at CCC. Viewing Dean like a father figure, David began to travel with Dean to the, pe to the beach in South Texas in the company of other youth. Whenever David said he needed money or help, Dean would help without question. Soon, Dean would begin to initiate a sexual relationship with David. In 1968, after three failed marriages and two failed companies, Mary shuttered the doors on CCC, taking Joyce with her to Colorado to start over. While mother and son would communicate over the phone, it would be the last time the two saw each other. After the closure of CCC, Dean would gain employment at Houston Lighting and Power Company as an electrician, testing electrical relay systems. Dean would work for HLMP until his death. In 1969, Dean began pay paying David with cash and gifts for fellatio. Sick fuck. <sighs> In 1970, at the age of 15, David dropped out of Waltrip High School and moved to Beaumont to live with his mother. Whenever David would return to Houston to visit his father, he would also spend time with Dean, often spending the night at Dean's apartment and regarding it as his second home. Later that year, David would move back to Houston and resume his relationship with Dean. 
On September 25, 1970, Dean killed his first known victim, an 18-year-old college freshman named Jeffrey Conan. Jeffrey vanished while hitchhiking with another student from the University of Texas to his parents' home in Houston. Jeffrey was dropped off alone at the corner of Westheimer Road and South Voss Road near the uptown area of Houston. Dean most likely offered Jeffrey a lift to his home, which he accepted. At the time of Jeffrey's disappearance, Dean lived in an apartment on Yorktown Street near the intersection with Westheimer Road. So he was like right there. David Brooks led police to Jeffrey's body on August 10th, 1973. The body was buried at High Island Beach. Forensic scientists subsequently uh, deduced that the youth had died of asphyxiation caused by manual strangulation and a cloth gag that had been placed into his mouth. The body was found buried beneath a large boulder covered with a layer of lime wrapped in plastic, naked and bound, hand and foot with nylon cord, suggesting he had been violated. Fuck yes, he had been. About the time of Jeffrey's murder, David interrupted Dean in the act of sexually assaulting two teenage boys whom Dean had strapped to a four-poster bed. Dean promised David a car in return for his silence. David accepted the offer, and Dean later bought him a green Chevrolet Corvette. Sidebar, driving the 2021 C8 is like a dream. Good times, good times. Really enjoyed that. And um, it wasn't green, but it was accelerate yellow. Gosh, she's a sexy bitch. Dean later told David that he had killed the two young men and offered him two hundred dollars, which was which is the equivalent to thirteen hundred thirty dollars in two thousand twenty for any boy he could lure to Dean's apartment on December thirteenth, nineteen seventy. David lured two 14-year-old Spring Branch youths named James Glass and Danny Yates away from a religious rally held in Houston Heights to to Dean's Yorktown apartment. James was acquaintances of David's was an acquaintance of David's who at David's behest had previously visited Dean's address. Both youths were tied to opposite sides of Dean's torture board and subsequently raped, strangled, and buried in a boat shed he had rented on November 17th. An electrical cord with alligator clips attached to each end was buried alongside Danny Yates's body. Sick. Fuck. Six weeks after the double murder of James Glass and Danny Yates on January 30th, 1971, David and Dean encountered two teenage brothers, Donald and Jerry Waldrop, walking towards their parents' home. The Waldrop brothers had been driven to a friend's home by their father with plans to discuss forming a bowling league and had begun walking home after learning their friend was not home. Damn, talk about shitty timing. Both boys were coaxed into Dean's van and driven to an apartment Dean had rented on Magnum Road, where they were raped, tortured, strangled, and subsequently buried in the boat shed. 
Between March and May 1971, Dean abducted and killed three victims, all of whom lived in Houston Heights and all of whom were buried towards the rear of the rented boat shed. In each of these abductions, David is known to have been a participant. One of these three victims, 15-year-old Randall Harvey, was last seen by his family on the afternoon of March 9th, cycling towards Oak Forest, where he worked part-time as a gas station attendant. Randall was driven to Dean's Magnum Road apartment, where he was subsequently killed by a single gunshot to the head. The other two victims, 13-year-old David Hillgeist and 16-year-old Gregory Malley Winkle, were abducted and killed together on the afternoon of May 29, 1971. As had been the case with parents of other victims of Dean, both sets of parents launched a frantic search for their sons. One of the youths who voluntarily offered to distribute posters the parents had printed, offering a monetary reward for information leading to the boy's whereabouts, was 15-year-old Elmer Wayne Henley, a lifelong friend of Hillgeist. The youth pinned the reward posters around the heights and attempted to reassure <sighs> to reassure the Hillgeists that their son that their son that there may be an innocent explanation for the boy's for the boy's absence. On August seventeenth, nineteen seventy one, Dean and David encountered a seventeen year old acquaintance of David's named Reuben Watson Haney walking home from a movie theater in Houston. David persuaded Reuben to attend a party at an address Dean had moved to on San Felipe Street the previous month. Reuben agreed and was taken to Dean's home, where he was subsequently strangled and buried in the boat shed. In September 1971, Dean moved to another apartment in the Heights. David later stated he had assisted Dean in the abduction and murder of two youths during the time Dean resided at this address, including one youth who was killed, quote, just before Wayne Henley came into the picture. In his confession, David stated the youth killed immediately prior to Elmer Wayne Henley's involvement in the murders was abducted from the Heights and kept alive for approximately four days before his murder. The identity of both of these two victims remain unknown. In the winter of 1971, David introduced Elmer Wayne Henley to Dean. So, throughout the script, I'm calling him Elmer because I'm that bitch that will call you by your government name. So, sorry. Even though he went by, even though, you know, Elmer goes by Wayne, whatever, it says Elmer throughout the script, so... Elmer likely was lured to Dean's address as an intended victim. However, Dean evidently decided the young man would make a good accomplice and offered him the same fee, $200 for any boy he could lure to his apartment, informing Elmer that he was involved in a, quote, white slavery ring operating from Dallas. Elmer later stated that for several months he ignored Dean's offer. However, in early 1972, he decided to accept the offer because he and his family were in dire financial circumstances. Strapped for cash, Elmer said the first abduction he participated in occurred during the time Dean resided at 925 Schuler Street, an address he moved to in February of 1972. 
David later claimed that Elmer became involved in the abductions while Dean resided at the address he had occupied immediately prior to Schuler Street. So it's always going to be a he said, he said between David and Elmer um, in regards to like how deep people were in in assisting David or Dean in his nefarious deeds. If Elmer's statement is to be believed, the victim was abducted from the Heights in February or early March 1972. In the statement Elmer gave to police following his arrest, the youth stated he and Dean picked up, quote, a boy at the corner of 11th and Studwood and lured him to Dean's home on the promise of smoking some weed with the pair. At Dean's residence, using a ruse he and Dean had prepared, Elmer cuffed his own hands behind his back, freed himself with a key hidden in his back pocket, then duped the young the youth into donning the handcuffs before observing Dean bind and gagging, gagging the child. Elmer then left the youth alone with Dean, believing he was to be sold into the sexual slave ring. The identity of the first victim Elmer assisted in the abduction in the abduction of remains unknown. One month later, on March 24, 1972, Elmer, David, and Dean encountered an 18-year-old acquaintance of Elmer's named Frank Aguirre, leaving a restaurant on Yale Street, where the youth worked. Elmer called Frank over to Dean's van and invited the youth to drink beer and smoke marijuana with the trio at Dean's apartment. Frank agreed and followed the trio to Dean's mother's or to Dean's home in his Rambler. Inside Dean's home, Frank smoked marijuana with the trio before picking up a pair of handcuffs Dean had left on the table. In response, Dean immediately pounced on Frank, pushing him on the t- onto the table and cuffing his hands behind his back. Elmer later claimed that he had not known of Dean's true intentions towards Frank when he had persuaded his friend to accompany him to Dean's home. In a 2010 interview, he claimed to have a, uh, attempted to persuade Dean not to assault and kill Frank once Dean and David had bound and gagged the youth. However, Dean refused, informing Elmer that he had raped, tortured, and killed the previous victim he had assisted in abducting, and that he intended to do the same with Frank. Elmer subsequently assisted Dean and David in Frank's burial at the High Island Beach at High Island Beach. Despite the revelations that Dean was, in reality, killing the boys he and David had assisted in abducting, Elmer nonetheless became an active participant in the abductions and murders. One month later, on April 20th, he assisted David and Dean in the abduction of another youth, a 17-year-old boy named Mark Scott. Mark, who was well known to both David and Elmer, was grabbed by force and fought furiously against attempts by Dean to restrain him, even attempting to stab his attackers with a knife. However, Mark saw Elmer pointing a pistol towards him, and according to David, Mark, quote, just gave up. Mark was tied to the torture board and suffered the same fate as Frank, rape, torture, strangulation, and burial at High Island Beach. David stated Elmer was, quote, especially sadistic in his participation in the murders committed at Schuler Street. 
Before Dean vacated the address on June 26th, Elmer assisted Dean and David in the abduction and murder of two youths named Billy Balch and Johnny DeLome. In David's confession, he stated that both youths were tied to Dean's bed and after their torture and rape, Elmer manually strangled, strangled Billy, then shouted, Hey, Johnny! And Johnny and shot Johnny in the forehead with the bullet exiting through the youth's ear. Johnny then pleaded with Elmer, Wayne, please don't, before he was strangled. Both youth were buried at High Island Beach. During the time Dean resided at Schuler Street, the trio lured a 19-year-old boy named Billy Ridinger to the home. Billy Ridinger was tied to the plywood board, tortured and abused by Dean. David later claimed he persuaded Dean to allow Billy R. to be released, and the youth was allowed to leave the residence. On another occasion, during the time Dean resided at Schuler Street, Elmer knocked David unconscious as he entered the house. Dean then tied David to his bed and assaulted the youth repeatedly before releasing him. Despite the assault, David continued to assist Dean in the abductions of the victims. Sidebar. So, because David pleaded for the life of his friend, Billy R., with Dean, and Dean, you know, obliged and released Billy after abusing and torturing him, David had to pay. So, Elmer and Dean set David up, and Dean abused David. And David, being, you know, under the mystical fuck shit bullshit haze of Dean, uh, just kept coming back. After vacating the Schuler Street residence, Dean moved to an apartment on Westcott at Westcott Towers, where in the summer of 1972, he is known to have killed a further two victims. The first of these victims, 17-year-old Stephen Sickman, was last seen leaving a party held in the Heights shortly before midnight on July 19th. The youth was savagely bludgeoned about the chest with a blunt instrument before he was strangled and buried in the boat shed. Approximately one month later, on or about August 21st, a 19-year-old named Roy Bunton was abducted while walking to his job as an assistant in a Houston shoe store. Roy was gagged with a section of Turkish towel and his mouth bound with adhesive tape. He was shot twice in the head and buried in the boat shed. Neither youth was named by either David or Elmer as being a victim of Dean, and both youths were only identified as victims in 2011. On October 2, 1972, Elmer and David encountered two Heights teenagers named Wally J. Simono and Richard Hembry walking to Richard's home. Wally and Richard were enticed to David's Corvette and driven to Dean's Westcott Towers apartment. That evening, Wally is known to have phoned his mother's home and to have shouted the word mama into the receiver before the connection was terminated. Oh. The following morning, Richard was accidentally shot in the mouth by Elmer. Good job, fuckface. 
with the bullet exiting through his neck. Several hours later, both youths were strangled to death and subsequently buried in the common graves inside the boat shed directly above the bodies of James Glass and Danny Yates. Sometime the following month, an 18-year-old Oak Forest youth known to both Dean and Elmer, named Willard Branch, disappeared while hitchhiking from Mount Pleasant to Houston. His gagged and emasculated body was buried in the boat shed. On November 15th, a 19-year-old Heights youth named Richard Kepner disappeared on his way to a phone booth. Richard was strangled and buried at High Island Beach. Altogether, at least 10 teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19 were murdered between February and November of 1972, five of whom were buried at High Island Beach and five inside the boat shed. On January 20th, 1973, Dean moved to an address on Wirt Road in the Spring Branch District of Houston. Within two weeks of moving into this address, he had killed 17-year-old Joseph Lyles. Joseph was known to both Dean and David. He had lived on Antoine Drive, the same street upon which David resided in 1973. On March 7th, Dean vacated his Wirt Road apartment and moved into 2020 Lamar Drive, an address his father had vacated in Pasadena. No known victims were killed between February 1st and June 4th, 1973. Dean is known to have suffered from H-Y-D-R-O-C-E-L-E, hydrocele, in early 1973, which may have contributed to his period of inactivity and hydrocele is defined as a type of swelling in the scrotum that occurs when fluid collects in the thin sheath surrounding a testicle. Hydrocele is common in newborns and usually disappears without treatment by age one. Older boys and adult men can develop a hydrocele due to inflammation or injury within the scrotum. The more you know. In addition, around the time of Richard Lyle's murder, Elmer had temporarily moved away to Mount Pleasant in an, an apparent effort to distance himself from Dean. These facts may account for this sudden lull in Dean's killings as well. Nonetheless, from June... Dean's rates of killing increased dramatically, and both Elmer and David later testified to the increase in the, lev- in the level of brutality of the murders committed while Dean resided at Lamar Drive. Elmer later compared the acceleration in the frequency of killing and the increase in the brutality exhibited by Dean towards his victims to being, quote, like a bloodlust, adding that he and David would instinctively know when Dean was to announce that he, quote, needed to do a new boy due to the fact that he would appear restless, smoking cigarettes, and making reflex movements. On June 4th, Elmer and Dean abducted William Ray Lawrence. The youth was last seen alive by his father 
on 31st Street. After three days of abuse and torture, he was strangled before being buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Less than two weeks later, 20-year-old Raymond Stanley Blackburn was abducted, strangled, and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. On July 6, 1973, Elmer began attending classes at the Coaches Driving School in Bel Air, where he became acquainted with 15-year-old Homer Louise Garcia. The following day, Homer phoned his mother to say he was spending the night with a friend. He was shot and left to bleed to death in Dean's bathtub before he was buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Five days later, on July 12, 17-year-old John Sellers of Orange County was bound, shot to death, and buried at High Island Beach. In July 1973, after David married his pregnant fiance, Elmer temporarily became Dean's sole procurer of victims, assisting in the abduction and murder of three Heights youths between July 19th and 25th. Elmer claimed these three abductions were the only three that occurred after his becoming an accomplice to Dean in which David was not a participant. One of these three victims, 15-year-old Michael Balch, brother of previous victim Billy Balch, was last seen by his family on July 19th on his way to get a haircut. He was strangled and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. The other two victims, Charles Cobble and Marty Ray Jones, were abducted together on the afternoon of July 25th, with Elmer burying their bodies in the boat shed. On August 3rd, 1973, Dean killed his last victim, a 13-year-old boy from South Houston named James Stanton Dramala. James was abducted by David and Dean while riding his bike in Pasadena and driven to Lamar Drive upon the pretense of collecting empty glass jars to resell, or bottles, to resell. At Dean's home, James was tied to Dean, at Dean's home, James was tied to Dean's torture board, raped, tortured, and strangled with a cord before being buried in the boat shed. David later described James Dramala as a small blonde boy for whom he had bought a pizza and in whose company he had spent 45 minutes before the youth was attacked. On the evening of August 7, 1973, Elmer, now 17, invited a 19-year-old named Timothy Cordell Curley to attend a party at Dean's Pasadena residence. Timothy, a casual acquaintance of Dean's, who was intended to be his next victim, accepted the offer. David was not present at the time. The two teens arrived at Dean's house where they sniffed paint fumes and drank alcohol until midnight before leaving the house to purchase sandwiches. Elmer and Timothy then drove back to Houston Heights and Timothy parked his vehicle close to Elmer's home. Elmer exited the vehicle and, hearing commotion across the street emanating from the home of his 15-year-old friend, Rhonda Louise Williams, walked towards her home. Rhonda had been beaten by her drunken father that evening and accepted Elmer's invitation to join himself and Timothy at Dean's home. Rhonda climbed back or climbed into the back seat of Timothy's Volkswagen. The trio then drove towards Dean's Pasadena residence. At approximately 3 a.m. on the morning of August 8, 1973, Elmer, Timothy, and Timothy, accompanied by Rhonda, returned to Dean's residence. 
Dean was furious that Elmer had brought a girl to his house. No shit, Sherlock. Telling him in private that he had, quote, ruined everything. Like a typical fucking douchebag. Elmer explained that Rhonda had argued with her father that evening and did not wish to return home. Dean appeared to calm down and offered the trio beer and marijuana. The three teenagers began drinking and smoking pot, with Elmer and Timothy also sniffing paint fumes as Dean watched them intently. After approximately two hours, all three teenagers passed out. Elmer awoke to to find himself lying upon his stomach and Dean snapping handcuffs onto his wrists. His mouth had been taped shut and his ankles had been bound together. Timothy and Rhonda lay beside Elmer, securely bound with nylon rope, gagged with adhesive tape, lying face down on the floor. Timothy had been stripped naked. Noting Elmer had awoken, Dean removed the gag from his mouth. Elmer protested in vain against Dean's actions, whereupon Dean reiterated that he was angry with Elmer for bringing a girl to his house and that he was going to kill all three teenagers after he had assaulted and tortured Timothy, initially stating, quote, man, you blew it bringing that girl, before shouting, quote, I'm going to kill you all, but first I'm going to have my fun. He then repeatedly kicked Rhonda in the chest before lifting Elmer to his feet dragging him into his kitchen and placing a twenty-two caliber pistol against his stomach, threatening to shoot him. Elmer calmed Dean, promising to participate in the torture and murder of both Rhonda and Timothy if Dean released him. After approximately 30 minutes of discussion, Dean agreed and untied Elmer, and then carried Timothy and Rhonda into his bedroom and tied them to opposite sides of his torture board. Timothy on his stomach, and Rhonda on her back. Dean then handed Elmer a hunting knife and ordered him to cut away Rhonda's clothes, insisting that while he would rape and kill Timothy, Elmer would do likewise to Rhonda. Elmer began cutting away Rhonda's clothes as Dean undressed and began to assault and torture Timothy. Both Timothy and Rhonda had awakened by this point. Timothy began writhing and shouting as Rhonda, whose gag Elmer had removed, lifted her head and asked Elmer, Is this for real? To which Elmer answered, Yes. Rhonda then asked Elmer, What are you going to do? What? Are you going to do anything about it? Elmer then asked Dean whether he might take Rhonda into another room. Dean ignored him, and Elmer then grabbed Dean's pistol, shouting, You've gone far enough dean as dean clamored off timothy elmer elaborated quote i can't go on any longer i can't have you kill all of my friends dean approached elmer saying kill me wayne elmer stepped back a few paces as dean continued to advance upon him shouting quote you won't do it elmer then fired at dean hitting him in the forehead The bullet failed to fully penetrate Dean's skull, and he continued to lurch toward Elmer, whereupon the youth fired another two rounds, hitting Dean in the left shoulder. Dean then ran out of the room, hitting the wall of the hallway. Elmer fired three additional bullets into his lower back and shoulder as Dean slid down the wall in the hallway outside the room where the two other teenagers were bound. Dean died where he fell his naked body lying face towards the wall lying face towards the wall 
Elmer would later recall that having shot Dean, <clears throat> the sole thought in his mind in the moment immediately thereafter was that Dean would have been proud of the way that he had behaved during the confrontation, adding that he had been training him to react quickly and forcefully, and that this was exactly what he had done. After he had shot Dean, Elmer released Timothy and Rhonda from the torture board, and all three teenagers dressed and discussed what actions they should take. Elmer suggested to Timothy and Rhonda that they should simply leave, to which Timothy replied, quote, no, we should call the police. Elmer agreed and looked up the number for the Pasadena Police Department in Dean's telephone directory. At about 8.24 a.m. on August 8, 1973, Elmer placed a call to the PPD. His call was answered by an operator named Velma Lines. In his call, Elmer blurted to the operator, Y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. Elmer gave the address to the operator as 2020 Lamar Drive, Pasadena. As the teens waited upon Dean's porch for the killer to or for the police to arrive, Elmer mentioned to Timothy that he had, quote, done that four or five times before. Quote, I mean, you know, talking about killing by shooting. Minutes later, a PPD patrol car arrived at 2020 Lamar Drive. The three teenagers were sitting on the porch outside the house, and the officer noted the 22 caliber pistol, pistol on the driveway near the trio. Elmer told the police officer that he was involved he was the individual who had made the call and indicated that Dean's body was inside the house. After confiscating the pistol and placing the three teens inside the patrol car, the officer entered the bungalow and discovered Dean's body inside the hallway. The officer returned to the car and read Elmer his Miranda rights. In response, Elmer shouted, quote, I don't care who knows about it. I have to get it off my chest. Timothy later told detectives that before the police officer had arrived at Lamar Drive, Elmer had informed him, quote, if he wasn't my friend, I could have gotten $200 for you. In PPD custody, Elmer initially was questioned in relation to the killings of Dean, to the killing of Dean. He recounted the events of the previous evening and that morning, explaining that he had shot Dean in self-defense. The statements given by Timothy and Rhonda corroborated Elmer's account and the detective questioning Elmer believed he had indeed acted in self-defense. When questioned regarding his claim that Dean had threatened him that morning, he had shouted that he had killed several boys. Elmer explained that for almost three years, he and David Brooks had helped procure teenage boys some of whom had been their own friends, for Dean, who had raped and murdered them. Elmer gave a verbal statement stating he initially had believed the boys had, had been, he had abducted, uh, I'm sorry, believed the boys he had abducted <clears throat> were to be sold into Dallas, into a Dallas-based organization for, quote, homosexual acts, sodomy, maybe later killing but soon learned Dean was himself killing the victims procured. Elmer admitted that he had assisted Dean in several abductions and murders and that he had actively participated in the torture and mutilation of six or eight victims prior to their murder. Most victims had been buried in a southwest Houston boat shed with others buried at Lake Sam Rayburn and High Island Beach. 
Dean had paid up to $200 for each victim he or David were able to lure to Dean's apartment. Police initially were skeptical of Elmer's claims, assuming the sole homicide of the case was that of Dean, which they had ascribed as being the result of drug-fueled fisticuffs that had turned deadly. Lame. Elmer was quite insistent, though, however, and upon his recalling the names of three boys, so he recalled Cobble, Hilgeist, and Jones, whom he stated he and David had procured for Dean, the police accepted that there was something to his claims. No shit. As all three teenagers were listed as missing at Houston Police Department headquarters. Hilgeist had been reported missing in the summer of 71. The other two boys had been missing for just two weeks. Moreover, the floor of the room where the three teenagers had been tied was covered in thick plastic sheeting. Police also found a plywood torture board measuring eight by three feet with handcuffs attached to nylon rope at two corners and nylon ropes to the other two. Also, They also found at Dean's address were a large a hunting knife rolls of clear plastic and the same type which was the same type that was used to cover the floor a portable radio rigged to a pair of dry cells to give increased volume an electric motor with loose wires attached <clears throat> eight pairs of handcuffs a number of dildos thin glass tubes and lengths of rope Dean's Ford Econoline van parked in the driveway conveyed a similar impression. The rear windows of the van This is where Chester Chester vans come from. from. The rear windows of the vans were sealed by opaque blue curtains. In the rear of the vehicle police found a coil of rope, a swatch of beige rug covered in soil stains, and a wooden crate with air holes drilled into the sides. The pegboard walls inside the rear of the van were rigged with several rings and hooks. Another wooden crate with air holes drilled in the sides was found in Dean's backyard. Inside the crate were several strands of human hair. Elmer agreed to accompany police to Dean's boat shed in southwest Houston, where he claimed the bodies of most of the victims could be found. Inside the boat shed, police found a stolen half-stripped car, a child's bike, a large iron drum, water containers, two sacks of lime, and a large plastic bag full of teenage boys' clothing. Two prison trustees began digging through the soft shell-crushed earth of the boat shed and soon uncovered the body of a young, blonde-haired teenage boy lying on his side, encased in clear plastic and buried beneath a layer of lime. Police continued evacuating through the earth of the shed, unearthing the remains of more victims in varying stages of decomposition. (sighs) Most of the bodies found were wrapped in thick, clear plastic sheeting. Some victims had been shot, others strangled, the ligature still wrapped tightly around their necks. All of the victims found had been sodomized, and most victims found bore evidence of sexual torture. Pubic hairs had been plucked out, genitals had been chewed, objects had been inserted into their rectums, and glass rods had been inserted into their urethra. <clears throat> into 
to their urethra and smashed. Cloth rags had also been inserted into the victim's mouths and adhesive tape wound around their faces to muffle their screams. The tongue of the first victim uncovered protruded over one inch beyond the tooth margin. The mouth of the third victim unearthed on August 8th was so agape that all upper and lower teeth were visible. Leading investigators to theorize that the youth had died with a scream on his lips. I'm sorry guys, that really fucks me up every time I... After the recovery of the eighth body from the boat shed was completed at 11.55pm, the investigation was discontinued until the next day. Accompanied by his father, David Brooks presented himself at HPD headquarters on the evening of August 8th and gave a statement in which he denied any participation in the murders, but admitted to having known that Dean had raped and killed two youths in 1970. Of course, because we got to cover our fucking tracks, right? On the morning of August 9th, Helmer gave a full written statement detailing his and David's involvement with Dean in the abduction and murder of numerous youths. In the confession, Elmer readily admitted to having personally killed approximately nine youths and to have assisted Dean in strangulation of others. He stated the only three abductions and murders David had not assisted him and Dean with were committed in the summer of 1973. That afternoon, Elmer accompanied police to Lake Sam Rayburn, where he, David, and Dean had buried four victims killed that year. Two additional bodies were found in shallow, lime-soaked graves located close to a dirt road. Inside the lakeside log cabin owned by Dean's family, police found a second plywood torture board, rolls of plastic sheeting, shovels, and a sack of lime, because the sack of shit was prepared. Police found nine additional bodies in the boat shed on August 9th. These bodies were recovered between 12.05 p.m. and 8.30 p.m. And all were in advanced state, in advance, in an advanced state of decomposition. One of the bodies unearthed bore evidence of sexual mutilation, meaning the severed genitals of the victim were found inside a sealed plastic bag placed inside the body. Another victim unearthed had several fractured ribs. The 13th and 14th bodies unearthed were bore identification cards naming the victims as Donald and Jerry Waldrop. David gave a full confession on the evening of August 9th, admitting to being present at several killings and assisting in several burials, although he continued to deny any direct participation in the murders because, you know... Deny, deny, deny. It's not a lie if you believe it. Bullshit. In reference to the torture board upon which Dean had restrained and tortured his victims, David stated, quote, Once they were on the board, they were as good as dead. <clears throat> it was all over, but the shouting and the crying. He agreed to accompany police to High Island Beach to assist in the search for the bodies of the victims. On August 10th, 1973, Elmer again accompanied police to Lake Sam Rayburn, where two more bodies were found buried just 10 feet apart. As with the two bodies found the previous day, both victims had been tortured and severely beaten, particularly around the head. That afternoon, both Elmer 
Both Elmer and David accompanied police to High Island Beach, leading police to the shallow graves of two victims. On August 13th, both Elmer and David again accompanied the police to High Island Beach, where four more bodies were found, making a total of 27 known victims, the worst killing spree in American history at the time. Elmer initially insisted that there were two more bodies to be found inside the boat shed, and that the bodies and that the bodies of two more boys had been buried at High Island Beach in 1972. At the time, the killing spree was the worst case of serial murder in terms of the number of victims in the United States, exceeding the 25 murders attributed to Juan Carano, uh, who had been arrested in California in 1971 for killing 25 men. I call bullshit because don't forget, we also have... The 44 that Jake Bird said that he had killed in the night between 1920 and 1947, as well as the body counts for uh, I think it was Richard Cottingham. But okay, but wait, that's right, this is before 70, whatever. So okay, I'll allow it. The Macabre record. Number of known victims attributed to a single murder case set by Dean and his accomplices was only surpassed in 1978. Again, I say bullshit, but John Wayne Gacy, who murdered 33 boys and young men and who admitted to being influenced by press coverage of the Houston mass murders to, you know, manacle his victims prior to their abuse and murder. Families of Dean's victims were highly critical of the HPD, which had been quick to list the missing boys as runaways, which we've seen time and time fucking again. Stop just fucking assuming that these kids ran away. Stop it. If the parents are insistent that their kids didn't run the fuck away, maybe we need to clean out our fucking ears, put some eye drops in, and reevaluate. Okay? boys were considered runaways who had not been considered worthy of any major investigation. The families of the murdered youths asserted that the police should have noted an insidious trend in the pattern of disappearances of teenage boys from the Heights neighborhood. Facts on facts on facts. Other family members complained that HPD had been dismissive of their adamant insistence that their sons had no reasons to run away from home. Again, what the fuck Kimberly just said. Everett Waldrop, the father of Donald and Jerry Waldrop, complained that shortly after his sons had disappeared in 1971, he had informed police and that an acquaintance had observed Dean uh, burying what appeared to be bodies at his fucking boat shed. In response, the police performed a perfunctory search around the shed before dismissing the report as a hoax. Why? Because the man used lime. Everett stated that on one of the many occasions when he visited the HPD, the police chief had simply told him, why are you down here? You know your boys are runaways. The mother of Gregory Malley Winkle stated, quote, you don't run away from home with nothing but a bathing suit and 80 cents. By May 1974, 21 of Dean's victims had been identified, with all but four of the youths having either lived in or had close connection to Houston Heights. Two more teenagers were identified in 1983 and 1985, 
one of whom was Richard Kepner, who lived in Houston, who also lived in Houston Heights. The other was Willard Branch, who lived in, Oak, in the Oak Forest dis- District of Houston. So, on August 13th, a grand jury con- convened in Harris County to hear evidence against Elmer and David. The first witnesses to testify were Rhonda Williams and Timothy Cordell Carley who testified to the events of August 7th and 8th, leading to the death of Dean Coral. Another witness who testified to his experience at the hands of Dean was Billy Ridinger. After listening to over six hours of testimony from various people on August 14th, the jury initially indicted Elmer on three counts of murder and David on one count. Bail for each youth was set at $100,000. The district attorney requested that Elmer undergo a psychiatric examination to determine whether he was mentally competent to stand trial, but his attorney, Charles Melder, you know, opposed the decision, stating the move would violate Elmer's constitutional rights. By the time the grand jury had completed its investigation, Elmer had been indicted for six murders and David for four. Elmer was not charged with the death of Dean Coral, which prosecutors ruled on September 18th had been committed in self-defense because it fucking was. Elmer Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks were tried separately for their roles in the murders. Elmer was brought to trial in San Antonio on July 1st, 1974, charged with six murders committed between March 72 and July 1973. The prosecution called dozens of witnesses, including Timothy and Billy Reitinger. Billy Reitinger testified that at Dean's home, he was tied to the torture board and assaulted repeatedly by Dean before he was released. Other incriminating testimony came from police officers who read from Elmer's written statements. In one part of his confession, Elmer had described his luring of two of the victims for whose murder he had been brought to trial... Uh, Cobble and Jones to Dean Coral's Pasadena residence. Elmer had confessed that after their initial abuse and torture at Dean's home, Cobble and Jones each had one wrist and ankle bound to the same side of Dean's torture board. The youths were then forced by Dean to fight each other with the promise that the youth who beat the other to death would be allowed to live. After several hours of each youth beating the other, Jones was tied to a board and forced to watch Cobble again be assaulted, tortured, and shot to death before he himself was again raped, tortured, and strangled with a Venetian blind cord. The two youths were killed on July 27th, 1973. Remember, they were abducted on July 25th, two days after they had been reported missing. Several victims' parents had to leave the courtroom to regain their composure as police and medical examiners described how their relatives were tortured and murdered. Throughout the trial, the state introduced 82 pieces of evidence, including Dean's torture board and one of the boxes used to transport the victims. Inside the box, police had found hair, which examiners had concluded came from both Colby and Elmer, or Cobble and Elmer. Upon advice from his defense counsel, counsel, Elmer did not take the stand to testify. His attorney, Will Gray, cross-examined several witnesses, but did not call any witnesses or experts for the defense. On July 15, 1974, both counsels presented their closing arguments to the jury. 
the prosecution seeking life imprisonment, the defense a verdict of not guilty. In his closing argument to the jury, District Attorney Carol Vance apologized for his not being able to seek the death penalty, adding that the case was, quote, the most extreme example of man's inhumanity to man I have ever seen. The jury deliberated for 92 minutes before finding Elmer guilty of all six murders for which he was tried. The following day, July 16th, 34 or formal uh, procedures to sentence Elmer for the six guilty verdicts began. And on August 8th, Judge Preston Dial ordered that Elmer serve each 99-year sentence consecutively, totaling 594 years, as he was transferred to the Huntsville unit to formally begin his sentence. Elmer appealed his sentence and conviction, contending the jury in his initial trial had not been sequestered, that his attorney's objections to new media being present in the courtroom had been overruled, and citing that his defense team's attempts to present evidence contending that the initial trial should not have been held in San Antonio had also been overruled by the judge. Elmer's appeal was upheld and he was awarded a retrial in December 1978. Elmer's retrial began on June 18, 1979. The second trial was held in Corpus Christi, with Elmer again represented by de- defense attorneys Will Gray and Ed Peglo. Oops. Elmer's attorney again attempted to have Elmer's written statements ruled inadmissible. However, Judge Noah Kennedy ruled the written statements given by Elmer on August 9, 1973 as admissible evidence. The retrial lasted nine days, with Elmer's attorneys again calling no defense witnesses and again attacking the credibility of Elmer's written confession. The defense also contended the evidence provided by the state belonging to Dean Curl, not Elmer Wayne Henley. On June 27, 1979, the jury deliberated for over two hours before reaching their verdict. Elmer was again convicted of six murders and sentenced to six concurrent 99-year terms. David Brooks was brought to trial on February 27, 1975. He had been indicted for four murders committed between December 1970 and June 1973, but was brought to trial but was brought to trial charged only with the June 1973 murder of 15-year-old William Ray Lawrence. David's defense attorney Jim Skelton argued that his client had not committed any murders and attempted to portray Dean as and to a lesser degree Elmer as being the active participants in the actual killings. Assistant District Attorney Tommy Dunn dismissed the defense's contention outright at one point telling the jury this defendant was in on the on this killing his murderous rampage from the very beginning. He tells you he was a cheerleader, if nothing else. That's what he was telling you about his presence. You know he was in on it. David's trial lasted less than one week. The jury deliberated for just 90 minutes before they reached a verdict. He was found guilty of Lawrence's murder on March 4, 1975, and sentenced to life imprisonment. 
David showed no emotion as the sentence was passed, although his wife burst into tears. David also appealed his sentence, contending that the signed confessions used against him were taken without his being informed of his legal rights, but his appeal was dismissed in May 1979. Elmer is serving his life sentence at the Mark W. Mike Michael unit in Anderson County, Texas. Successive parole applications dating from 1980 have been denied. He is next eligible for parole in October 2025. David served his life sentence at the Terrell unit near Rocheron, Rocheron, there you go, Texas. He died of COVID-19 related complications at the Galveston Hospital on May 28th, 2020 at the age of 65. So, what had happened was this. The real Candyman was a complete predator who used his family's candy business to lure and groom and procure young men, young boys that he wanted to violate initially sexually But then, in a more predatory manner, by torturing them and then killing them. His accomplices were children that were groomed and lured in by him. And their loyalty and alliance towards him... Let's go back to Harrison Graham... And Harrison Graham's love-hate relationship with the male pimp who took him under his wing and, you know, made him a, you know, the person who would bring back, you know, procure youth for the pimp. We saw this. We saw this. And we saw this with Harrison Graham as well. Uh, Pimps are pieces of shit. Pedophiles are pieces of shit. Predators are pieces of shit. Dean was a piece of shit. His mom was a piece of shit. When the first teenager said, Excuse me, ma'am. Your son has made inappropriate sexual advances towards me. And she fired him. Instead of reprimanding her son and apologizing to this child and trying to, you know, make amends. She fired him. So she was a piece of fucking shit. She enabled. And then she set him up with that fucking apartment above the candy company. So she gave him a place, a layer, you know, like a fucked up Willy Wonka. Mm-hmm. And then he went on this serial killing spree using these two young boys 
as his accomplices, making them just as guilty as him. Uh, I feel, I do feel for the boys because they at first were victims who got Stockholm syndromed and then went from being victims to predators themselves, again, just like Harrison Graham, only far worse. Uh, I honestly can say that I am glad that Dean met his maker at the hands of one of his many victims because, again, Elmer Wayne and David Owen were both victims of Dean Coral. So there's that. So I'm glad that, you know... Elmer was able to, Elmer Wayne was finally able to find some balls about him when he saw that his two friends, two more of his friends were about to get, like, you know, murked up, um, and just said, no moss, like, fuck you, bro, you can't just keep killing all my fucking friends, I'm not gonna have any fucking friends left, it's just gonna be you and David, and I don't wanna just be friends with you and David, you know, and I think it was a pusser for move on David's part, to, you know, try to diminish, you know, or downplay his role because he was the first one. He brought Elmer in. This was, you know, he was just as responsible as Elmer was in a lot of this shit. You know, uh, so there's that. So, huh. Yeah. I mean, wow. I mean, Elmer Wayne is going to continue to be doing his sentence. Again, he is eligible for parole October 2025. There's some documentaries on the YouTube about this case. Few podcasts have covered it because of the tie-in with the Candyman and, you know, the movie. But I find that the horror really lies in the true crime and not Tony Todd who to me is up there with Robert England as like like a gosh man and Vincent Price like three names that are synonymous with horror see how I just tried to like segue so again you guys hope you appreciate this and liked it this is episode three pre-recorded for October spooky season gonna get two more taken care of for you and with that being said here's that outro music you love so much